Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of deals, mergers, and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Thank you, as always, for listening. I apologize for my voice in this episode in advance. I have a little bit of a cold. You can blame my children for passing along a bug to me for that one, but I hope I can make my way through this. Last week, we talked about T-Mobile and Sprint merging and how, if that deal gets announced, and we hear it could be just a few weeks away, the big question will be if regulators allow it, because it would be taking four wireless companies in the United States and bringing it down to three, something that just five years ago, or even maybe three years ago, regulators explicitly didn't allow. First, when AT&T tried to buy T-Mobile, and second, when Sprint made overtures toward regulators to try to merge with T-Mobile then. But what is it about the Trump administration today that potentially makes both of those companies want to try again? Well, I thought I'd turn to an expert on merger antitrust issues and merger consolidation, but also one that doesn't necessarily have a neutral agenda on the subject. Kevin Cartier, reporter researcher with the Open Markets Institute, joins me on the phone from Kansas. First, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Kansas is not a typical location that somebody joins us from. Just to be clear, you don't work in Kansas, right? You're just there for for personal reasons? Yes, that's right. I'm on a vacation out here, and it's very nice. Before we, we dive right into this, maybe just tell us a little bit about what the Open Markets Institute is. So the Open Markets Institute is an independent think tank. Um, we were recently uh, left the New America Foundation after some issues with, uh, with the think tank, uh, but now we've restarted as an, our own independent think tank that focuses on competition policy uh, with antitrust enforcement, but also anti-monopoly as a, as a larger uh, philosophy that encompasses antitrust law, but also consumer protection and, and other related issues. So we research sectors from food and farming to tech to uh, healthcare and pharmaceuticals. Um, and we've been at this for about 15 years or so. My bosses have been uh, working on these issues. Um, and yeah, that's what we're all about. Yeah, I can just read from your website. It's, uh, you know, in talking about mergers, here's a quote. I'm not talking about mergers per se, but monopoly mergers, quote, They destroy jobs, slow innovation, degrade safety, harm our environment, endanger our national security, force us to pay more for less, and threaten the liberties and properties of the entrepreneurs and workers who form the core of America's middle class. So very specifically anti-monopoly take here. What do we know about Trump, President Trump, and his antitrust policy at this point that indicate to you where he sort of falls in the spectrum of pro-merger, anti-merger, pro-monopoly, anti-monopoly? Well, it's been interesting to watch since in the campaign, uh, Donald Trump discussed, you know, his opposition to the AT&T Time Warner merger. Um, and, you know, he's made some noises that that made it sound like he may be um, not your traditional uh, conservative antitrust thinker that would, you know, be fine with most mergers going through, for instance. Um, and he, he showed some opposition, but, but since then we've seen what I'd say a pretty standard conservative antitrust enforcement um, from the administration, regardless of what Trump is saying about, about mergers or whether this one's a good one or, that, or that's a bad one. Um, most of the people that he's appointed or are in positions of power in the administration to make competition policy are what I would say are kind of standard conservative consumer welfare focused antitrust thinkers. Uh, so you've got Ajit Pai at the FCC, which of course has a lot of authority on um, concentration in the communication space. Uh, is a pretty conservative thinker, um, is uh, trying to repeal the FCC's net neutrality rules. Um, and then Mekon Delrahim was just approved to uh, run the Justice Department. Uh, he 
seems to be a pretty conservative guy on antitrust issues. And then um, Joseph Simons has been discussed as a nominee to head the uh, FTC. Now, of course, that's still forthcoming as a nominee, so we're still just talking about it. We don't know if it'll actually happen. And uh, he is also just a standard member of the antitrust bar, well-respected, of course, but again, uh, kind of a more conservative thinker. Um, and Maureen Olhausen, who's, who's still um, at the FTC, uh, is, is also a fairly conservative thinker. Terrell McSweeney is a, is a little more liberal, but I think we should expect to see a lot of what we saw with the Walgreens Rite Aid deal recently, where McSweeney and, and Olhausen were split on the on the issue, but of course that allows the deal to, to go through because there's there's only two of them. So regardless of what Trump says on antitrust and monopoly, um, most of the people in power in his administration seem to be pretty fine with increasing concentration and uh, what I call more kind of standard conservative antitrust thinking. So just to be clear, when you say standard conservative antitrust thinking, what that sort of means is will allow most deals to go through. Yeah, a focus on what one thing that, that we talk about with this is that so since the 1980s, there's been a consumer welfare focus in antitrust, which tends to say that we're going to focus on prices and effects on consumers. And, and that's that's about it, which allows a lot of mergers to go through, essentially because um, prices are only one metric of monopolization and concentration. So if you're only looking at prices, you, you miss a lot. Um, so, for instance, when we look at say, uh, you know, we talk about Sprint and T-Mobile, uh, the things that the agencies are going to be looking at is, is this going to affect price? That's it. Um, but of course, there are other effects of concentration. There's less choice, uh, potentially less innovation. Um, there's effect on workers because companies get more powerful. There are lower wages. So when I talk about conservative, standard conservative antitrust, it's, it's mostly focused on prices and quote unquote consumer welfare with a, with a focus on prices specifically. When, uh, we tend to think the Open Markets Institute that the agencies should take a, take a broader view of concentration, not just look at prices, but also you know, the effects of vertical integration on uh, producers further up the supply chain, the effect on workers, um, the effect on innovation, uh, the effect on other competitors, and also you know, just what it means to have so much power uh, in the hands of, say, one or two or three companies in a sector. Let's take Sprint T-Mobile, since that's the way I kicked off this thing. As you look at this deal, if this deal does in fact get announced in a few weeks, is this a very standard case of this is approaching monopoly territory? We are taking four to three. This is a deal that should not happen, in your opinion? I think so. I think this is a, a really strong case where I even think that a lot of antitrust thinkers uh, on, you know, say, the left or the center left or the center right, um, antitrust thinkers ought to see this deal as not acceptable. I mean, a four to three merger is... I think it should, should be anathema to, to antitrust enforcers. I mean, for the last several years, any competition in the industry, uh, a lot of it can be traced to T-Mobile itself. You know, they've, they've really changed up the, the pricing plans and pricing systems for the, for the whole industry. Uh, they ended their, the two-year contract a little bit ago, and that really set off some big price wars in the industry. And I, I don't think anyone would necessarily call the wireless market as it stands today, a particularly competitive one. I mean, there's just four companies, really, that, that control the whole space. But any competition that we have seen, uh, and this is to T-Mobile's credit, uh, comes from T-Mobile. Um, they've, they've really fought hard to uh, kind of unsettle these larger incumbents. And I think they've done a good job. I mean, they just got a, a bunch more Spectrum and, and the most recent Spectrum auction. And uh, like I said, they've been aggressive with trying to compete on price. And so I don't necessarily see why you would want to 
combine T-Mobile with you know the other small carrier, smaller carrier in the industry, Sprint, because the bigger you get, the the less incentive there is to compete. Um, so yeah, I think this is a really clear case of a merger that shouldn't be allowed through. Not just on you know kind of our thinking of we want to see more proactive antitrust enforcement, but I think this is something that conservatives and liberals really ought to agree that this is. Uh, ridiculous merger to allow through. And and we'll see if that's the case. So is it fair to say that sort of ironically, since T-Mobile theoretically would want this merger to go through if they're indeed asking it to go through, ironically, T-Mobile's business practices over the past few years are making the argument of why their own deal should not go through. In other words, if they had been less competitive and worse at what they did, there would be a stronger argument for this deal to go through. Yeah, I, I think they're really making the best case uh, for the deal to be blocked. I think they're really uh, showing a lot of evidence of competition in the industry as much as, as there can be given, you know, just four big players. Uh, I think I think that's true. It, it is kind of ironic, but they've uh, they've been they've been fighting really hard to uh, to grab market share from Verizon and AT and T, and they've been doing a good job, at, you know, improving their service, um, being like I said, more competitive with price. So yeah, I think you're right. They su- they supply the best argument against their own deal. <laughs> you mentioned earlier the AT and T Time Warner deal. That's another deal where, as you said, Donald Trump actually sort of came forward initially and said, you know, I'm going to block this. That was sort of in campaign mode, Donald Trump. Since he's been elected, we have heard less and less of that. And in fact, there have been months where we've heard basically nothing. Now we hear that deal maybe weeks away from being approved uh, on the earliest timeline. So it doesn't sound like that uh, initial sort of campaign promise of I'm going to block this is going to come through unless it would be a big surprise to the market. Uh, uh, Before I sort of get into the policy questions around that, I'm curious, do you or your organization have a specific take on that deal? Does that somehow approach monopoly territory in any way or 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 are you guys more okay with that one that one's that one's a, a little more complicated i'd say sprint and t-mobile is a is a fairly straightforward you know horizontal merger um you know that's that's a fairly straightforward case at&t tim warner is a little more complicated but but yes as, as a group we tend to uh we we oppose this merger. we don't we don't think it's a we don't think it's a good idea and the main reason is is vertical integration over the last 20 years or so, really since the Telecom Act of 96, uh, we've seen a lot more vertical integration between the companies that, say, provide service, you know, whether they be, uh, a, you know, let's take AT&T, you know, companies like AT&T, which provide service, um, private, provide internet, but also mobile service, um, tying up with companies that provide content, like Time Warner. And historically, in the U.S., there's been a long tradition of dividing uh the people who make content from the people who distribute content in the communication space. So um, we've we've tried to ensure that there wasn't too much vertical integration in that space all the way back since the 1900s. Um, we tried, you know, for instance, uh, this wasn't the 1900s, but AT&T was blocked from uh, going into internet stuff back in the 1970s, for instance. And so there's long been a, a, a history of opposing vertical integration in the communication space. And so we see the AT&T Time Warner uh, proposed merger as a continuation of this trend of a combination of the companies that are actually distributing things and the companies that are actually creating content. And we see that as a worrying trend because it provides more leverage by these companies um, over content producers further up the supply chain as well as over consumers and uh, businesses further down the supply chain. Uh, vertical integration is this classic case of 
uh, of with with consumer welfare focused antitrust or what I talked about earlier as being you know traditional conservative antitrust. Vertical integration is this interesting case where it's not often captured by price. So we might not see AT&T, Time Warner end up raising the price of this or that, but we should expect companies like that to have more power over whether they be studios further up the supply chain or whether they be uh, other businesses further down the supply chain or consumers further down the supply chain. So this is an area that, that we really think a lot about, that vertical integration is something that has really been missed over the last you know, 30 years or so. So Donald Trump was fairly outspoken about being a little bit uncomfortable with this, more from the media angle. And then the fact that it's sort of his rhetoric around it died down and this deal looks like it, it, it may in fact go forward. What does that tell you or what should it tell us about the process behind how these deals are seen from a yes-no standpoint? In other words, who is who is running the ship here? Who is the commander of the ship? Because we saw, look, in the Obama administration, we saw a bunch of big deals. Some went through, some didn't. You know, Comcast, Time Warner Cable, since we're talking about this general media telecom world right now, that was a deal that looked like it might go through until President Obama himself came forward and gave a speech and a policy layout about uh, how he thought the internet should be regulated from what's called a Title II designation, which is more sort of like a utility after he did that, that deal seemed to die. So it seemed like the president himself was sort of leading the agenda on that one. Do we have any sense who is leading the agenda? Is it President Trump? Is it somebody else in his administration when it comes to deciding if these deals should go through or not? Well, as, as you say, you know, the president really can do a lot to set the tone of the agencies and, and say, okay, our administration is concerned about concentration or concerned about monopolization. But at the end of the day, it's the agencies, the, the FTC and the DOJ. And then, of course, in the communication space, the FCC has a lot of power, but it's primarily the FTC and the DOJ that have all the power here. I mean, Trump can come out and say, oh, I'm concerned about this deal or wave that deal through, and he, he can set the tone. It's true. Obama really did have a lot of influence on antitrust uh, policy in his administration, all the way back from you know coming out in favor of Title II designation for net neutrality, uh, which pushed Tom Wheeler to end up uh, endorsing that proposal. Um, so yeah, the president can really have a lot of effect on this, but at the end of the day, it's it's not it's not up to him. It's not up to Trump, and you know, really, it comes down to who's appointed. And in the case of Donald Trump, the people that he's appointed or remain in the position, uh, like say Maureen Olhausen, who has he hasn't filled any slots on the FTC yet. Those people are still coming from a fairly traditional antitrust perspective. You know that we should see something relatively similar to what. Uh, George W. Bush did or what Obama did in his in the first half of his term. And just to be clear, part of the reason for why that is, why the ultimate decision maker would have to be the DOJ head, say, rather than Donald Trump, is that if, in fact, the DOJ pushes to block a deal, that is not necessarily the end of the story. That can then be litigated in, course, in, in courts. In other words, there needs to be a legal argument behind why a deal would violate antitrust provisions. It can't just be some sort of willy-nilly opinion of the people involved that this is a monopoly or this isn't, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah, you have to have a, you have to have a case in court. At the end of the day, you have to make it to a judge. And um, that is both, in some ways, a blessing and a curse of antitrust. It's, it's a blessing in the sense that it allows the agencies to be independent, as they ought to be, 
they should be somewhat, uh, you know, independent from the whims of, you know, politicians on a day-to-day basis. But on the other hand, it means that if, say, you're President Obama or, say, President Trump, if he was acting differently, had some disagreements with these agencies or the people running the agencies, they are independent from uh, his influence to a certain extent. Um, so they're set up to be independent and they're set up to make legal arguments, of course. Um, and that's both, both a good and a, and a complicated thing. Um, antitrust as it is today is, is established as supposed to be kind of removed from day-to-day politics as an independent, uh, agency. And that, that can be a good thing. You know, we saw during the Nixon administration, for instance, uh, he opposed some deals and looking back at the history, looks like it might've had something to do with Nixon trying to shake down companies or, or, um, you know, fight uh, various media groups for opposing him, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's good that the agencies are independent, but it also means that it, it's hard for, say, uh, politicians or, you know, just regular people to say, hey, I don't think you're necessarily doing a good job. But you're right. You have to make a, have to make a legal argument. But, of course, there's a lot of options about what arguments to make. We have a lot of good antitrust laws on the books. They've just been interpreted over the last, really, 30 years or so to, to be more narrow, they've been interpreted more narrowly over the last 30 years than the Open Markets Institute thinks they, they ought to be. And by the way, that may be a reason why we do see AT&T Time Warner go through, because if you look at sort of the history of vertical integration, well, the, the most recent case of this is Comcast buying NBC, a deal that did in fact go through with conditions on it. Uh, so the, the, the latest legal precedent to your point, indicates that a deal like this will go through rather than won't. Yeah, unfortunately, I do think that we should expect it to go through. Most of the reporting seems to say that they're focusing on conditions at this point, which, you know, says says what it says. It looks like the deal is going to go through. Maybe there will be some some conditions of saying, oh, you got to sell off this or sell off that. But it looks like it'll probably go through. That's right. I mean, as as established now, the antitrust bar and antitrust agencies are not particularly concerned about vertical integration, and we really think they ought to be. That is a, it is a big concern, and it represents a, a big concentration of power in Comcast NBC, but also potentially in AT&T Time Warner. But of course, we see this in other spaces too. This isn't unique to communications. Um, but yes, it, I think we should expect it to go through. That's consistent with the, the most recent precedents. Kevin, before I let you go, I want to hit on one other subject here. Uh, yet another uh, vertical uh, that I do th- that that I think is more and more being looked at as a potential area of concern is technology. The biggest companies in the world are tech companies these days. They already exist. President Trump, again, sort of speaking to the contradictions here, has been somewhat outspoken against a company, let's say, like Amazon. Uh, in tweets, in statements, saying, look, this company seems to have a lot of power. You know, it doesn't pay enough taxes. And yet Amazon actually did make a big acquisition this year, bought Whole Foods, and that deal already closed. It's already done. When you look at Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft, is there any indication to you that these companies may or should be looked at as monopolies in their current state? Absolutely. I mean, I think there are some very clear cases, and then I think there are some more ambiguous cases. But on the whole, these companies that you listed, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft, um, 
have a lot of power and they are the center of both a lot of money and power in our economy today. And that has like a, a macro effect. You know, these companies are increasingly playing in politics, but it also has a has a more micro effect on certain sectors. So I think the clear some of the clearest examples of this are with Google and Facebook's control over the advertising market. Um, Google has Google and Facebook have essentially captured all of the growth of digital advertising over the last several years, and they continue to do that. And that Google and Facebook capturing that growth is less money going into the people actually creating media and content online. I mean, if you talk to newspapers and you know online media folks, uh, they're seeing a lot of problems from Google and Facebook controlling this space. I think that is a great case of. Uh, while maybe not a full monopoly, certainly a duopoly between those two in the digital advertising space. So is there anything that a government can do, let's say the United States government, to prevent that at this point? Because those companies already exist. Do you expect some sort of crackdown on an existing company? Because we're not talking about blocking a merger here. We would be talking about deconstructing these companies. There, the good news is, is that there are lots and lots of options. So people always talk about breakups, as they should. You know, we've we've used breakups in the past in the United States, all the way back to say Standard Oil, um, and we've used breakups, you know, even uh, more recently than that, AT and T, for instance. Um, and but breakups are just one of many options. You can also say uh, use Title II style regulation. Uh, you know, institute say a net neutrality for. Um, for what's called edge providers, you know, companies like Google and Facebook. Um, you could also create stronger consumer protection rules that would, say, establish uh, more data privacy, which could kind of reduce companies' control over your data and thus their control over advertising. There, there are lots of options here. And, of course, you know, a breakup could be successful, could be really useful. Say you could separate Google from DoubleClick and AdMob, two of the big uh, advertising acquisitions it made uh, in the last, like, 15 years or so, um, you could separate that out. You could say, Google, you have to separate search from your other parts of your business, for instance. But that's just one of many options. And I think we should get to a place where it's really important to, to start talking about what are we going to do with these companies. If this is not working right now in this market very well, we have to start being critical and uh, we've got to start being creative about what solutions. And the good news is, is there's a long history here of anti-monopoly and antitrust thinking in the U.S. and we have lots and lots of uh, inspiration to draw from. Really a hundred years of enforcement to, to take ideas from and to say, well, we're, we're uh, faced with a real conundrum here. We don't know how to deal with this established company. Let's look back into the history and say, what did we do with AT&T? What did we do with Standard Mobile? Standard Oil? What did we do with uh, the Tobacco Trust? The, the US has done lots and lots of things, and that means that we have lots and lots of options today. But the first step is just really talking about it and, and starting to um, you know, make people pay attention to these, these new giants. Final question for you, Kevin. Is there any example of a large deal that you and your, you and your organization would feel comfortable with saying, you know what, this deal is a good deal? That's a that's a good question. It depends. It depends on the sector, right? So I, I can imagine uh, having a you know fairly deconcentrated sector, and those are those are you know few and far between nowadays, to be honest. Where in that in say that particular sector, it, it could make sense. Sometimes um, tie ups make sense. Um, that's that's certainly true. Sometimes it just makes sense to say acquire rather than build out. But nowadays we live in such a, a concentrated economy that that it's it's hard to, to think of cases um, where that would be where that would make sense. I mean, 
in sector from sector, whether you're looking at airlines or internet or food or groceries or agribusiness and seeds, all of them are, are incredibly concentrated. So yeah, there's a world in which we could absolutely have uh, more consolidation and mergers and stuff that would be totally acceptable. Um, for instance, it makes sense for, say, the auto companies, uh, for big manufacturing companies, sometimes it makes sense for them to be vertically integrated. Now, you want to make sure that they don't face zero competition. You don't, you don't want to allow them to muscle over independent repair shops, for instance. But sometimes it makes sense for Ford to be able to build its car from the ground up. And that makes sense to have a, have a large company in that case, as long as they face as much competition as the country can guarantee. So yes, I can imagine that being the case, but it's, it's increasingly difficult to see that in this very concentrated, increasingly monopolized economy that, uh, that we see. Kevin Cardi, reporter researcher with the Open Markets Institute. Uh, thank you for joining us, Kevin. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was great talking. I hope you enjoyed that perspective from Kevin. Uh, remember, you can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or Bloomberg.com or the Bloomberg Terminal. Also, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. Kevin, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at Politicarty, politic, A-R-T-Y. Sarah Patterson is our producer. See you next week, guys.